You're listening to K-Squid, Santa Cruz 90.7 FM, Many Voices, Community Radio. This is Story Behind the Story. I'm Clara Shirley Appel, and my guest today is Adam Becker. His new book, What is Real, tells the story of a century-long fight over the meaning of quantum physics. What this enormously successful theory, which has given us so much of the technology we use today, is actually saying about the world. The New York Times called What is Real a thorough, illuminating exploration of the most consequential controversy raging in modern science, and The Wall Street Journal called it an excellent, accessible account of the fascinating, if complex, story of quantum dissidence. Though Adam has written about science for a slew of other publications, including The New York Times, The BBC, NPR, Scientific American, and New Scientist, it is his book that's the topic of our conversation today. Adam Becker, welcome to Story Behind the Story. Well, thanks for having me, Clara. Your book is about the fight over the meaning of quantum physics, but I imagine a lot of people are completely unaware that there even is such a thing. Can you start by giving a brief overview of the debate? What's the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics and how does it bear on the question of what is real? Basically, as you said, quantum physics is this phenomenally successful theory about the world. You know, we can use it to predict and explain all kinds of natural phenomena, you know, everything from why the sun shines to why the sky is blue to why gold is the color that it is. Hmm. And we can use it to, you know, build incredible technologies, including, you know, most of the technology that we're using to record this interview and (laughs) and also pretty sure the technology, well, those look like halogen lights. So not so much, but like LEDs and stuff (laughs) like that definitely need some LEDs. Yeah, exactly. uh, Yeah. in 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 the soundboard and whatnot. Yeah. Um, But yeah, you know, you'd think that a phenomenally successful theory like that would also come with a picture of what's in the world. Like, you know, if a a theory works, then that means that it's latching on to something in the world, right? You know, if if a theory just made really accurate predictions, but somehow didn't bear any resemblance to the world around us, that would be a phenomenal miracle. It would just mean it was working sort of by accident. So hmm. we, don't, we don't think that that's how quantum physics works. It must be latching on to something in the world. But if you ask, okay, what is quantum physics saying about the world? What is the world like such that quantum physics makes accurate predictions? Uh, the answer that you traditionally get is something like, shut up, that's a stupid question. <laughs> and it's not, a, it's not a satisfying answer. The, the slightly more sophisticated versions of shut up that you get are things like, well, the job of physics is just to explain the – or sorry, not to explain, to predict the outcomes of experiments. Uh, or, you know, we don't ask questions like what's real in the world. We just ask questions like how do we calculate what's going to happen to system X when we do Y thing to it. Shut up and calculate. Yeah, shut up and calculate. Exactly. And, and, and this sort of – assemblage of claims is usually called the Copenhagen interpretation named after the home of the physicist Niels Bohr, who is one of the founders of quantum mechanics. Um, We want an answer to this question. There doesn't seem to be a satisfying one traditionally available. And for many physicists, that's sort of the end of the story. It's, oh, okay. uh, I guess I'll just, you know, use quantum physics without really understanding what it tells us about the world. But there are some people who thought that that was not, you know, sufficient. Uh, (laughs) Einstein being, you know, the most famous one. But my book is the story of the people who didn't think that that was a satisfactory answer. 
So what, one thing that I find interesting about this, part of the way that the Copenhagen interpretation has maintained its foothold, as you tell it, is by treating its failure to describe reality as a feature instead of a bug. Yeah. So al- alternatives are scorned not just for the specific ways that they get around, say, the measurement problem, but for trying it all. Yeah. And that's had an enormous impact on how physics is taught. Mm-hmm. So how do you and other physicists learn about this controversy to begin with? <laughs> so first, I'm going to have to back up and talk a little bit about the measurement problem, right? Fair enough. So <laughs> yeah, so the measurement problem, the idea here is that there are basically two different rules for how the world works that show up in quantum physics. One of these things is called the Schrodinger equation. And the Schrodinger equation basically uh, looks like a law of nature. It's a differential equation, which is, you know, like Newton's laws and and a whole bunch of other laws in in physics, Maxwell's laws and whatnot. And uh, so we like differential equations and it's sort of nice and smooth. And it says that things sort of proceed in a very deterministic and Mm. like simple way. And then sometimes that rule is suspended and instead this other thing takes over called the Born rule or the collapse rule, which says that, you know, uh, forget this sort of smooth evolution into the future that the Schrodinger equation predicts. Uh, all of a sudden something random happens and uh, with a certain probability you'll, you'll get a certain outcome for a measurement or an experiment. And that that's strange, right? We're not used right. to thinking of there being two contradictory laws of nature to describe the same thing. But the other thing about it is the rule for when to use one of these things and when to use the other one is you use the Schrodinger equation when you are not making a measurement and you use the Born rule when you are making a measurement, which means that we need to have a really good definition for what a measurement is. And that's exactly what we don't have. <laughs> so... Yeah, the the idea is a measurement is oh you know that's when that's when you try to measure a certain value okay is it when I do it is it when a physicist does it can it be anybody uh, can a dog do it do you have to be a human do you have to have a PhD in physics <laughs> like uh, does this mean that the world was waiting for billions and billions of years for humans to show up or like the first bacterium to show up like. It sounds How, to sound like uh, the sun revolving around the earth all over. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah no, it, it doesn't sound good. Um, it, it's just a really, really vague term to have show up in these fundamental laws of physics. So, yeah, the answer, and this leads us to the question that you just asked, which is, you know, how do we find out about these things if this is, you know, not something that we're encouraged to go after in the classroom? The answer for me and for most of the other physicists and philosophers and people who I know who are interested in these things is I showed up in college thinking, oh, you know, I've read all of these weird pop science books about physics, and they said these strange things about quantum physics that I don't understand, but I'm sure it'll all make sense once I actually learn the subject in the classroom and like actually get a handle on the math. Then I did that, and that made things worse. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I asked one of my professors, you know, something like, this is this is 15 plus years ago, so I don't remember exactly what I said, but 
I said something like, you know, but but what's happening when we're not looking or what defines a measurement? Like how like why why are things different when we make measurements versus when we don't make measurements? And and really started pushing him on this. And I don't remember exactly what went down. I remember that we both got a little upset. And then I, I do remember exactly what he said to shut the conversation down. He said, if that's the kind of question that you're interested in, why don't you go to the philosophy department? Which you sort of also did. Which I did. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I sort of said, okay, cool. So, yeah, uh, one way that people find out about this is, you know, they, they keep digging and sometimes end up in philosophy departments. Well, and I was kind of wondering, because you and I are, are roughly the same age, which yep. means in the 90s when there was this proliferation of popular science books about mm -hmm. quantum physics, mm -hmm. we were teenagers, essentially. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Did that inform at all your interest in this topic, your interest in physics? I mean, I was interested in physics from a pretty young age. I mean, basically my, my progression, and I feel like this is pretty normal too, is when I was really little, I was interested in dinosaurs. And then <laughs> that switched over to astronomy sometime in elementary school. And then from astronomy, it was sort of this slow slide down to physics. But yeah, I mean, I, I definitely read a bunch of pop science books and like watched Cosmos and mm -hmm. Nova specials mm -hmm. and stuff like that. You know, the creation of the universe starring, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Timothy Ferris, not the motivational <laughs> speaker, you know, the the science writer. So the, those things definitely informed how I look at this stuff and definitely motivated me to understand this stuff. I mean, I, I said, you know, I wanted to understand quantum physics. These books also said strange things about relativity, like, you know, oh, you know, uh, I, what time it is depends on how fast you're going and things like that. And, and, Hey, you know, that, that all sounded really strange. And then it turns out the math for special relativity is high school math. Like you don't, it's not even, you know, you don't need calculus. You can, you can do it pretty easily. So I, I learned <laughs> relativity in high school and, you know, like sat down and looked at the math and whatnot and realized, oh, these strange things that people are saying, that makes total sense once I look at the math. Yeah. Um, I'm sure the same <laughs> thing will happen when I look at the math for quantum physics. That is not how that story ended. While quantum physics is, is young compared to classical physics or compared to some problems in, in biology and chemistry, it's still close to a century old at this point. Yep. The debate is also close to a century old at this point. Yeah. Um, Niels Bohr and Einstein had their first set of um, arguments over it in, what, the 20s or 30s? Yep. So why is the story relevant now? Because we still don't have an answer. Hmm. The story of the world that comes with our best theories of physics and science matters, you know, and it matters for the science because the story of the world, the picture of the world that comes with the theory informs a lot about how you're going to practice your work as a scientist. It informs what experiments you're going to choose to do. It informs how you're going to think about the next theory, what you're going to look at this theory and, and try to change. But it also matters beyond the, the science, right? Because the pictures of the world that we have from science inform the wider sphere of human activities aside from science. I mean, science is a human activity. And like all human activities, it's influenced by the rest of human activities mm -hmm. and influences them in turn. Uh, so, yeah, science and the pictures of the world that we get from the science influence art, history, politics, culture, uh, everything. I mean – if Copernicus and company had not 
made the argument and proved that the Earth is not at the center of the universe, that uh, that the Earth is just, you know, one planet mm. among many. Um, and and then, you know, by extension, the sun is one star among many. Then I think it's it's hard to imagine that Darwin and Wallace would have had the audacity to suggest that humans are not at the center of biological mm. creation, that we are just, you know, another kind of monkey, well, monkey, ape, animal, uh, that we are just another kind of animal. Uh, and if, if Copernicus and Darwin and company had not done all of that, then Stanley Kubrick wouldn't have made 2001, hmm. right? <laughs> Do you think it's especially relevant at this present moment or is or is it just a matter for you of this was when I got the grant and this is when I can write it? <laughs> uh, it's a little of both. Um, I mean, I think it's important that we have an accurate view of how science actually functions. I think that that is especially important right now um, because, yeah, there's a lot of people denying scientific facts and doing so by making false claims about the scientific process. So I think that raises another question, because yeah. as, as I was reading the book um, yeah. from the very beginning, a part of me, while fascinated by this story, kept worrying about the effect that it might have on people who already don't trust science, mm. especially mm -hmm. now when we so desperately need like social buy-in to fix really big problems like climate change that, mm -hmm. that we know about through yeah. science. Mm -hmm. Was that something that you thought about as you were writing the book at all? It certainly was after 2016. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's why I, I tried to address this a little more directly toward the end of the book. But yeah, you know, maybe this is naive, but I really think that the best policy, if we want people to have confidence in science, is to accurately represent how science functions. Not Be hide the mistakes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, we want to give a picture of science warts and all, right? Because the fact is that, you know, those blemishes are there, right? Science makes mistakes. Science is not a body of facts, hmm. right? Science is a process. Yeah. And the facts that it produces or the results that it produces are part of that process and a result of that process. And it's certainly true that facts that we learn from science uh, have a special status and we are very, very confident in them, and rightly so, and climate change is happening and humans are causing it, and if we don't stop that, then terrible things are going to continue to happen and get much worse. But I really think that we need to present science to the public as a process rather than an, you know, uh, a monolithic, inviolable you know, body of facts handed down from on high, because that's exactly how science doesn't work. And, yeah. and I think that if people have this impression of science as this monolithic unassailable process and then they catch wind that you know there's something human about it after all then all of a sudden they're going to swing to the other extreme and say oh well then it's all bullshit whereas if we're honest up front and say look we are just apes trying to understand a world we never made and we are doing the best that we can. And this process has a really good track record, even though it also has some, you know, has made some serious mistakes. Um, but it's the best that we've got. And we have a lot of good reasons to believe a lot of the things that come out of it. Um, I think I think that's important. I mean, because the other thing 
And this is this is going to start by sounding like me bragging, <laughs> but it's only a little bit that. Uh, uh, you know, when 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 the New York Times said that you know my book was about the most contra- uh, consequential controversy in modern science, I definitely had a couple of my friends say, "But you know, isn't that isn't that climate change?" I said, "Oh." Absolutely not, because that's not a controversy in modern science. Hmm. That's a manufactured controversy coming in from outside of science. This is a real scientific controversy within science. And so one of the things that I like to think that my book does is it shows what an actual scientific controversy looks like, as opposed to the fake bullshit that comes out of the climate denial movement. Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Tune in to our award-winning morning news program right here during primetime, 8 o'clock weekday mornings, right here on K-Squid, on KSQD. Our independent news program offers diverse perspectives, unique opinions unheard in the mainstream media, live as the news unfolds. Tune in for Democracy Now!, the War and Peace Report, weekday mornings at 8, right here on KSQD Community Radio, 90.7 FM. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Adam Becker, whose book, What is Real?, tells the story of the search for meaning in quantum physics. One of the other things I'm interested in that's, I think, maybe the flip side of that is that one of the legacies of Copenhagen's suppression of debate, um, combined with the practical success of quantum physics in military and industrial applications, is this, you know, shut up and calculate mentality that we were talking about, about before. Yeah. And you talk in the book about the influence of that approach on the way that physics is taught. You just explained yeah. <laughs> your sort of personal experience with that. Yeah. Do you think that it's had an effect on education more broadly? I think so, but maybe not in in as direct a way. Um, hmm. I talk about this in the book a little bit. I, I, World War II had a lot to do with this, right? Because World right. War II, you know, with the Manhattan Project, you see the rise of big science. You see the rise of, you know, huge investments in science from the military, from industry, from governments. Uh, and that, you know, just changes the way that science is taught. Um, and physics, you know, was the was the first and most radically transformed initially uh, of all the sciences. But, you know, there, there are other things that come out of World War II as well, like the GI Bill, right? And so the combination of government money and the GI Bill and whatnot means that you get – suddenly you get many more institutions of higher education, a lot more research being done, a lot more researchers, right? You know, just more scientists and academics. This in turn leads to, you know, an explosion in the volume of academic literature, both scientific and, and you know, in the humanities and, and whatnot. But you also – and you also get, you know, lots of really interesting and innovative work showing up. But this also leads to a kind of siloing, right? You know, the, I think something that, that we forget a lot in academia is that these disciplinary boundaries that are in the course catalog and that are on the campus map – are not, you know, written in the sky. They're not actual mm. features of the world. There are things in the world and enterprises and projects that, you know, we do as humans and questions that we want to pursue and features of the world that we're interested in that, you know, mostly cannot be pursued in a single discipline. And I think that that, that kind of siloing that happened, you know, almost unavoidably as a result of just the number of people involved exploding. And so the relevant literature also exploding, you know, it became much, much harder to have a deep knowledge in, you know, anything beyond your own subdiscipline. that makes it harder to look at these questions that don't fit neatly into one subdiscipline, And that makes it harder to even acknowledge that some of those problems are there. 
Well, and one of the things in, in some ways that I find most fascinating about your book is is something that you talk about throughout, but I don't think you try to make explicit in any way. We tend to think of philosophy and physics as like opposite ends of a spectrum in terms of, <laughs> right? I mean, from in everything from like employability <laughs> with that degree to um, to the way that they're conducted. But um, one of the sort of interesting threads through this book is the porousness of those two disciplines. Yeah, and and right, you have degrees in both. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. My my undergrads in both. Um, so yeah, my my bachelor's is in philosophy and in physics and then yeah but my phd's in physics yeah yeah so i think that speaks to that the sort of artificiality of that siloing yeah absolutely i mean because there are questions that people go after in philosophy departments that are definitely physics questions like what do we do about the measurement problem and there are questions that people go after in physics departments that are kind of philosophy questions like things about the nature of probability that show yeah. up you know, even putting quantum physics and the measurement problem aside, some of these things just show up when you do things like cosmology. Like there are, there are legitimate questions in cosmology that, you know, cosmologists pursue that don't have any of this sort of like historical and cultural baggage that the measurement problem does um, that are definitely, you know, questions that you would see in philosophy departments as well and that, you know, philosophical work is very relevant to it. Uh, so yeah, I mean that the boundary is porous. I think there is a tendency in physics and many other disciplines to dismiss certain questions by saying, "Oh, that's a philosophy question." The same way that that professor did with me in college, and uh, and and that's not to besmirch, you know, every physics professor I ever had in undergrad. Many of them were much more understanding than that. It was just that one guy. But yeah, I mean the. There's a tendency to dismiss these things, but the fact is, you know, we all come to the table with our philosophical presuppositions, right? You know, that's that's unavoidable. And the best that we can do is be explicit about them and examine them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's a lot of what philosophy is about. And that's, that's something that's relevant to physics. And, and they used to be much more closely related fields. <laughs> well, and I think also, we tend to think of humanities and sciences more generally being distinct. Yeah. But of course, you are not the first physicist to write a popular science book that is very accessible and very easy to read. So I guess talk talk to me a little bit about the process of writing it. I mean, what was it what was it like to sit down? Especially you have done some science writing before, but sure. all short form, right? Like this yeah. is the mm -hmm. first huge scale narrative that covers such a large cast of characters. What was that like for you? Scary. <laughs> uh, it was really really scary. I mean, I had wanted to write this book since you know, well before I became a professional science writer. Uh, it's part of why I went into the field. You know, I wanted to write this book because I'd seen that there were, you know, not only that there was this, you know, set of problems related to the foundations of quantum physics that weren't really being addressed well in the physics community, but also that there was some sort of strange history there that I didn't fully understand and I wanted to know what had happened there. And when I went looking for a book on it, I couldn't find a good one. Hmm. So, um, so there's that. But, you know... I talked with a couple of friends who'd written books. Um, Anil Swami in particular was incredibly helpful. And he explained to me how the book writing process worked. And so, you know, I sat down and I wrote a sample chapter and Anil helped me get an agent and so on and so forth. But in terms of actually doing it, I realized, okay, I need to find a way to make this compelling. And 
these ideas are, are, are pretty abstract, you know, I mean, yes, quantum physics explains a wide variety of features about our everyday lives. Like, you know, why I'm not falling through the chair right now, <laughs> but, um, or the floor or the floor or like why my skin and bones are solid at all. But yeah, so quantum physics explains a lot of things, but you know, it's not something most people are used to thinking about and we're not used to seeing the world in that way. And even if you're trained as a physicist, it can be difficult to think about things that way. And because there's no picture of the world that traditionally comes along with quantum physics, um, or at least not, you know, a coherent, well thought out one, um, that makes it even harder. So I thought, okay, you know, if I want to get people to care about ideas, one of the best way to do that is to wrap those ideas up in stories about people, because people care about people more than they care about ideas generally. And so I thought, okay, I need to make this a story about people. I need to put the people in this history front and center and then use them as a vehicle to explore these ideas and the history of these ideas. Well, and it is very human. We'll, we'll talk more about um, sort of the characterization of the people in this a little bit later. But I also wanted to ask you, the, the way you present the story is very linear. Is mm. that the way that you wrote it? Were you starting at the beginning and going to the end or? <laughs> sort of. It's linear in part because the ideas are complex, right? And so I wanted to give it the simplest plot structure that I could. Um, because if, if you're going to be dealing with a book with very complex ideas and a large cast of characters, then at least give it a simple narrative. And, and also, you know, that keeps uh, – it, it just makes it easy to organize stuff. And history does tend to be one thing happening after another. So <laughs> um, I sort of wrote it that way. Um I was doing research for the second half of the book while writing the first half of the book, mostly like, you know, I was running around doing lots of interviews for the later parts of the book while writing the parts of the book that involve people who I can't interview because they're all dead. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely, I wrote an outline that was fairly linear and then I tried to sort of execute that outline and kind of succeeded and then had to go back and fix things out of order and like in some cases do serious revisions or complete rewrites of chapter drafts. And so that was not linear. So it it, it sort of was linear, but it also sort of wasn't. I, I don't know how satisfying an answer that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, it's interesting. I um, I liked what you said at the beginning about how you presented it in a linear way because they're complex ideas. I think yeah. that's something that maybe a lot of us don't think about the sort of trade-off between the complexity of the content and the complexity of the form. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I definitely felt strongly about that. There was a, it's actually inspired by one of the best questions I've ever seen anyone ask an author at an author reading. I went to see William Gibson hmm. on Halloween in 2014 and he was doing a reading from his, his book that was new at the time called the peripheral, which I really liked. And uh, somebody asked him, you know, a lot of your books have the same plot structure with, you know, lots of people converging on one object. And this is a fairly traditional plot structure. Why did you do that? And he said, well, you know, I did it in, uh, I did it in Neuromancer because I knew I was introducing lots of new ideas for people. And I figured if I'm going to have all of these new ideas floating around, then I should at least give people like the simplest plot structure I can think of so they can follow that through this, you know, massive block of weird ideas. 
And, and then he said something, and I'm probably misrepresenting him here, where he said something like, and then it worked, so I did it again. But, like, <laughs> but you know, I, I thought about that a lot after he said that. It's like, huh, I want to write a book with lots of weird, complex ideas that people aren't used to thinking about. If I can just sort of, you know, stick a narrative right in there in a simple way that I can get people to care about this and follow it. Because, yeah, it is a, there's a trade-off between the complexity of the ideas. There's a trade-off between how you're going to construct the narrative and how you're going to represent the ideas, right? And and there's also there's also a tension between perfect fidelity to the truth and creating a perfectly compelling narrative. So, and, so tell me more about that. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, cuz that's that's like that's what makes writing nonfiction hard, right? Uh -huh. in, in some ways. You want to be accurate. You want to tell a true story. But you also want to tell a story. You yeah. don't just so so you know, you can sort of imagine it has a to spectrum. Be engaging. Yeah, exactly. Like at one end of the spectrum is perfect fidelity to the facts, which is like a spreadsheet with li like that lists positions of objects at different times. Right? That's that's completely incomprehensible. <laughs> at the other end of the spectrum is a really well-told, completely made-up story, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is very easy to follow, but also bears no relationship to the truth. You need to find a place where you can tell a compelling narrative without doing violence to the truth. So, so talk to me specifically about how you resolve that tension or how you approach that tension in this book. Yeah, so a lot of it had to do with the characters. I figure, okay... Uh, again, people care about I, I care about people more than they care about ideas in general. So if I can follow the paths of individual characters and get people to care about these characters, people's lives, especially not to be morbid, dead people's lives often, you know, have various arcs that that sort of fit naturally to their lives, narrative arcs. Because, you know, you know, with like the, if nothing else, a life has a beginning, a middle and an end. Hmm. And uh, which is why it's easier to do this with dead people. <laughs> um, you know, you, you sort of pick those people out. And the danger is you don't want to make it look like, you know, these people, these people did what they did entirely by themselves because no one does anything ever entirely by themselves ever anywhere. But these are genuinely remarkable people who did achieve interesting things and come up with really fascinating ideas. And so if you present those ideas in the context of this is what was going on in their lives at the time, you know, David Bohm was, uh, you know, on the verge of being exiled for political reasons when he came up with this really interesting idea. And Hugh Everett was this prankster who, you know, <laughs> basically got in a drunken fight over the meaning of quantum mechanics and decided to stick it to the man. Like the, the, these are these are ways to take these abstruse and really wild ideas like spooky action at a distance and multiple universes and uh, and and put them into a compelling human story. Welcome to Cats on Dogs, insights for both ends of the leash. I'm professional dog trainer Lori Katz, here with Watsonville's very own radio retriever Chopa. We'll take your calls, answer your dog training questions, and bring you interviews with local experts and international dog training treasures. You'll also have the opportunity to send out love songs and get well soon messages to your favorite canines and other animal companions as well. 
Listen to Cats on Dogs the first Saturday of each month, 1 to 2 p.m. on 90.7 KSQD. If you're just joining me, my guest today is Adam Becker, whose book, What is Real?, tells the story of the search for meaning in quantum physics. Now, then, I'm going to ask you to read a little bit from the book so that we okay. can get to know a couple of characters who really are characters. Sure, yeah. Um, so I'm going to ask you to read the excerpt, for, an excerpt from the chapter on John Bell's 1980 paper in which he immortalizes his colleague Reinhold Bertelmann. Okay. So before we start, can you set it up a little? Sure, yeah. So, um, so the deal here is John Bell... At this point in the story, uh, uh, John Bell has done some really important work in the foundations of quantum mechanics. He's taken important questions that were, you know, part of the debate between Einstein and Bohr in the 1920s and 30s. And he's shown, you know, actually, these are questions that we can go after experimentally. And Einstein was right to be really concerned about these things. But he was wrong about, you know, the way to resolve these questions that he was concerned about. And um, and and has sort of, you know, inspired the beginning of a new crop of people who are concerned about these foundational questions in quantum physics. But his day job is, you know, being a, a straightforward, very talented quantum physicist who, uh, who you know, uh, uses particle physics to um, to design new accelerators and come up with, you know, new predictions of quantum field theory and like more standard physics stuff, because at the time and, and still true, it's very, very hard to find, you know, paying work that, that is in quantum foundations. And it was even harder back then. So, so he's working, Bell is working at CERN um, in Switzerland, the home of the, now the home of the LHC at the time, the home of other powerful particle accelerators. And uh, Bertelman is this, um, younger guy who shows up at CERN in, uh, in around 1980. So yeah, I think that's the setup we need. Reinhold Bertelmann starts each day with a tiny act of rebellion. He doesn't look like a rebel at first glance. His impeccably trimmed facial hair and his pro uh, professorial taste in clothes match the formal style of his hometown, Vienna, which has never really shed its imperial facade. But Bertelmann's sartorial conformity stops just short of his shoes. His socks are always mismatched. I've worn socks of different colors since my early student days, and I am a student of the so-called 68 generation, Bertelman says. And this was my little protest, my hidden protest, to wear socks of different colors, because I realized that whenever somebody sees this, they were either shocked, they said, how stupid, how can you do it? Or they laughed about it and thought I am crazy. Forty years ago, Bertelman's rebellion was more obvious. With shoulder-length hair and an unruly beard, he stuck out when he first arrived at CERN in 1978. An American would say I was a hippie or something, he recalled. Nonetheless, Bertelman's open, friendly smile attracted many friends at CERN and most eventually noticed his socks. But John Bell never mentioned them. Bertelman and Bell worked together for two years on a thorny calculation in particle physics, totally unrelated to Bell's theorem. He did not say one word about my socks, not one word, Bertelman recalled. And Bertelman, in turn, did not ask Bell about the rumor he had heard in the CERN canteen that Bell had done some kind of important work in the foundations of quantum physics. People said, oh, you're collaborating with Bell? He is somehow famous in quantum physics. And I always asked, what did he do? Oh, he did something. You don't have to worry about it because quantum mechanics works anyhow. Nobody at CERN could explain what the Bell inequalities are. 
But one day, in the fall of 1980, while Bertelmann was visiting Vienna for several weeks, he was suddenly confronted by Bell's theorem in an unexpectedly personal way. A colleague of Bertelmann's came running down to his office brandishing a new paper by Bell. He just came in waving this paper, Bertelmann recalled. And he said, Reinhold, look what I have. Now you are famous. Bertelmann, astonished, read and reread the title of the paper. Bertelmann's Socks and the Nature of Reality. <laughs> the paper even came with a small cartoon drawn by Bell himself. The philosopher on the street, who has not suffered a course in quantum mechanics, is quite unimpressed by Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen correlations, Bell wrote. He can point to many examples of similar correlations in everyday life. The case of Bertelmann's Socks is often cited. Dr. Bertelmann likes to wear two socks of different colors. Which color he will have on a given foot on a given day is quite unpredictable. But when you see that the first sock is pink, you can be already sure that the second sock will not be pink. There is no accounting for tastes, but apart from that, there is no mystery here. And is not the EPR business just the same? Bell briefly outlined the Copenhagen interpretation and its history, explaining that, Quote, influenced by positivistic and instrumentalist philosophies, many came to hold not only that it is difficult to find a coherent picture of the quantum world, but that it is wrong to look for one, if not actually immoral, then certainly unprofessional. Going further still, some asserted that atomic and subatomic particles do not have any definite properties in advance of observation. Then Bell brought it back to Bertelmann's socks. It is in the context of ideas like these that one must envisage the discussion of the Einstein-Podolsky-Rosen correlations. Then it is a little less unintelligible that the EPR paper caused such a fuss, and that the dust has not settled even now. It is as if we had come to deny the reality of Bertelmann's socks, or at least of their colors, when not looked at, and as if a child has asked, how come they always choose different colors when they are looked at? How does the second sock know what the first has done? Bell himself had answered the question of why entangled particles can't be like Bertelmann's socks. His theorem and the experiments of Clauser and Aspey show that something much stranger must be going on. Certain particular correlations, realizable according to quantum mechanics, are locally inexplicable. They cannot be explained, that is to say, without action at a distance, Bell wrote. You might shrug your shoulders and say coincidences happen all the time, or that's life. Such an attitude is indeed sometimes advocated by otherwise serious people in the context of quantum philosophy. But outside of that peculiar context, such an attitude would be dismissed as unscientific. The scientific attitude is that correlations cry out for explanation. Aspey's charm offensive had done wonders for quantum foundations, but indifference to the subject was still widespread among physicists. And, as Clauser knew well, there was little hope of finding a full-time job doing work on quantum foundations. Bell himself spent nearly all of his time at work doing particle physics with relativistic quantum field theory, which he knew worked very well, for all practical purposes, as he said, just as he had done with Bertelmann at CERN. But Bell's pressing concern about the foundations of his field were never far from his mind. I am a quantum engineer, he once announced at the start of a talk, but on Sundays, I have principles. Bell, normally soft-spoken, could turn on a dime if a visiting speaker said something silly about quantum foundations. In conferences, he would usually say nothing, recalled another one of his younger colleagues, Nicolas Gizin. 
But if someone would say wrong things, especially on quantum interpretations, he was erupting and then making with his Irish accent very sharp comments and very down to the point. And when that started, the speaker could just dissolve and liquefy. But this kind of fire didn't come from anger. It came from Bell's deep moral convictions about the integrity of science, the same kind of moral convictions that had led him to become a vegetarian decades earlier. While the Copenhagen interpretation was unwilling to grapple with the measurement problem, Bell was unwilling not to grapple with it. He had no patience for the vagueness of the Copenhagen interpretation and its willingness to kick the can down the road. Though he was wary of encouraging young physicists to devote their careers to foundations, he was patient and kind with anyone who wanted to talk with him on the subject. When I was asking my questions about foundations, he would be extremely nice and take time to answer, Gisin recalled. And when he was coming to my lab to talk, he had this red hair and this hat and this little pom-pom on top. He was not at all looking like, you know, the great John Bell. Bell was always smiling, and he had a weakness for non-conforming people, Bertelman said. We had discussions not only about physics, but also about politics, about art, and so on. Yet until Bertelman saw Bell's paper, they had not discussed Bell's work in Foundations. When I saw that paper, it kicked me out of my socks, he recalled. <laughs> totally knocked me down. You can imagine. I was so excited. My heart trembled, and then I remember I went to the telephone and phoned with him. I was excited. He was very calm. Once Bertelman had recovered, he resolved to learn more about quantum foundations. I was shocked, and then I had to dig into this field. One of the things I love about your book in general, which we touched on, is the way the personalities of the physicists you're talking about really come through in the writing. Thank you. And I think that's a spectacular example of it. <laughs> Thank you. But, you know, Bohr is charismatic and maybe a little dense. Mm -hmm. um, Everett is... Brilliant, pragmatic, drunk, and a bit bored. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that sounds right. Bertelman is quietly rebellious. And, yeah. and you build these characterizations in much the same way a novelist would, right? Mm. Like Bertelman's socks are a yeah. major characterizing feature that tell you so much about his rebellious nature and um, his general nonconformity. Yeah. The things that would have drawn Bell to him. Yes. So as you're building out the characters and the narrative of this, of this book, were you looking at novels? I mean, you talked about William Gibson, who is yeah. primarily a novelist. Yeah. Where did you get your inspiration? Ah, oh, that's a good question. I, I definitely was looking at novels. I mean, um, to to talk about a more nuts and bolts part of my process that is bearing on this, unless I'm really in the flow of things, I will usually only write for 50 minutes at a time and then take 10-minute breaks hmm. where I forbid myself from looking at anything with a screen and usually in those 10 minute breaks, I will read, but I also forbid myself from reading anything directly relevant to what I'm writing. Uh, so it has to be really a break. And when I was writing this book, as I got deeper into it, I found that I really could only read fiction. I couldn't read nonfiction. And so I was reading lots of novels and short stories and whatnot. You know, I was reading, um, well, I was reading Ursula K. Le Guin, um, because I've always loved her work. Um, uh, I was reading Michael Chabon. I was reading Philip Roth. I went back and read The Great Gatsby uh, because Michael Chabon talked about it in the introduction to one of his books. Hmm. And I realized I hadn't read it since high school and I hated it in high school. And then I went back and read it again and realized that you really shouldn't read that book when you're in high school. <laughs> it's much better if you read it, you know, after having been a 20 something. Uh, but, but, 
Yeah, the point is, uh, yes, I was reading a lot of novels. And, um, you know, uh, as Annie Dillard says, uh, what, what you read is what you write, you know, what the, the, it's fuel for the fire. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I'm sure those novels worked their way into this book somehow. Um, but in terms of more direct planning and, and characterization and figuring this out, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely thought about this in terms of, okay, you know, these are the characters in the book. Um, they happen to have been real people. And I need to portray them as accurately as I can, um, but I still need to give a sense of who they are, uh, just as much as I need to give a sense of the ideas involved and the places that people were. I mean, if I don't, you know, if I don't write this in a way that people can understand who the characters are, then it won't matter that I wrap the ideas up in people, right? Yeah. If you can't relate to those people. So, so yeah, I did think about it that way. I was lucky enough to be able to interview a lot of the people who show up in the second half of the book. And when I was interviewing them, you know, I went to talk with them in person every chance that I could in part because I knew that I'd be writing about them and I wanted to find out what kinds of people these people were. But in, in terms of, of how I did the characterizations and how I thought about it, I mean, I thought about them as people who you know, I wanted the character to care about. And that mm. meant giving details about their lives, making them sympathetic. You know, um, even the people whose ideas I'm not sympathetic to, I wanted the reader to care about because, you know, they're, they're interesting people. Uh, everybody's flawed. Uh, so yeah. And I, and I definitely thought about plot structure and whatnot in, in the same way that we think about it for things like novels and movies. So I think that leads nicely into my next question. Yeah. Because it, it would be very easy reading the story to see people like Bell or Bohm who kept hacking away at quantum foundations while the physics world and sometimes the larger world shunned them as heroes or martyrs. Mm -hmm. I think Bohm kind of sees himself as a martyr too. Yeah, which is yeah Bohm. Sort of a fascinating. Yeah. <laughs> but it would also be easy to see Bohr and his defenders as, as hacks or zealots. Right. But that seems too simple, right? Like you have this great H.L. Mencken quote about how <laughs> <laughs> every human problem has a solution that is neat, plausible, and wrong. Yes. I... On a human level, why do you think the members of the Copenhagen camp fought so hard to suppress dissent? Yeah, I don't think that's what they thought they were doing. I mean, you know, I don't, I, I agree. I, I was very happy that I found a way to work that Mencken quote in because I, I, that's definitely fundamental to how I see the world. Uh, you know, I don't think Niels Bohr was a bad guy. I mean, I, he certainly wasn't a bad physicist. He did incredible work in physics. The Bohr model of the atom alone, you know, is one of the great conceptual breakthroughs in one of the biggest puzzles that physics has ever faced. Um, and I would say that was only the second best thing that Bohr ever did in his life. The, the greatest achievement of Bohr's life, as far as I'm concerned, and I, and I, worked to include it in the book, even though it's kind of ancillary. Uh, Niels Bohr was instrumental in saving the Jews of Denmark in World War II. Yeah. Uh, you know, like uh, something like 98% of Jews in Denmark before the war survived to the end of the war, uh, uh, which is just absolutely astonishing. And without Niels Bohr, it's not clear that that would have happened. Um, he certainly wasn't the only one who made it happen. But, you know, that's that's a big deal um so yeah I, I niels bohr i have i have a great deal of admiration for the man uh i just think he was wrong about some stuff and i think that he wasn't a very clear writer or speaker uh and that's okay like i said everybody's flawed uh, i don't think 
I don't think that he thought he was fighting to suppress things. I don't think that his followers and colleagues and students thought that they were fighting to suppress things. Uh, I think that they thought that they were fighting to clear up misunderstandings. And also, like, you get things like people trying to protect their legacy against, you know, some bad things that they did, like Heisenberg, uh, where, you know, it's hard to know if that's what his motivation was, but it sure looks like it might have been. Or you get, like, genuinely evil people who were absolutely trying to protect their legacy and also, you know, kill lots of people like your Don, who was a Nazi. <laughs> yeah. Um, so on the other side of things with people like Bell sure. and Baum and yeah. De Broly, again, like it's easy to see them as, as heroes, but they <laughs> are of course flawed humans as well. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting to Bell is one of the most interesting characters to me in this book. And part of that is because he, he does something which it would be easy to mistake for like as a as a bad choice um in that he does kind of like ward a lot of people a lot of young physicists away from quantum foundations at the same time right like i think he is kind of an embodiment of arguments for tenure (laughs) (laughs) keep the tenure system around yes (laughs) and he's using tenure in those conversations Mm -hmm. as well right like i can't remember who it is who he has a conversation with who he's like yeah are you tenured and they say yes and then he's like yes you can work on this yeah exactly yeah (laughs) that was that was elaine aspey who you know Mm -hmm. has gone on to have a phenomenally successful career precisely because you know he did what bell like he, he did the thing he was interested in that bell encouraged him to do um, but I, I also think that Bell was right and that if Aspe had not had a permanent position, it would have been bad for his career to do what he did. And I mean, that's what happened to John Clouser. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And I mean, Aspe and Clouser are different people with different career paths and, you know, time and chance and whatnot happens to all of us. But yeah, I, I think that's right. It is, it is a pretty good argument for tenure, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> you talk a little in the book about – this is a different track, but you talk yeah. a bit in the book about philosophy of science. Yeah. And particularly about um, sort of two core ideas, positivism and falsifiability. Mm, yeah. Um, and I kind of want to tackle the second one because y- you do touch on it, but you don't get in as deep as you do on positivism. Sure. I think for most non-scientists and maybe most – or maybe it's most non-philosophers – we assume that falsifiability is this core principle of scientific inquiry that yeah. you can't have a hypothesis that can't be falsified. Yeah. Um, but you say it's not that simple, right? Like that yeah, contrary to our beliefs about the way we build and test hypotheses, we're n- like almost never, I mean, probably actually never testing assumptions in isolation. It's always yeah. the sort of combination of things. It's the remote control yeah. battery <laughs> example that you have in the book. Yeah. So for me, right. That leaves me wondering what it means to do science. And in the book, you kind of say, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think I think in the book, I say something like it's complicated. <laughs> right. So so here you are on the radio. Oh, what, yeah. What's your answer? Your... Well, this is definitely the right format to lay out <laughs> a full theory of, of, you know, the answer to the demarcation problem. You know, what is and isn't science? Um, yeah. <laughs> I do think it's complicated. And, you know, going back to what I said earlier, I think it's a disservice to try to say that it's not complicated. And and also, to be fair to Karl Popper, you know, Mr. Falsifiability, he thought it was complicated, too. And I think his views are often sort of taken and simplified as, you know, happens to everyone whose views get taken up in any number. Um, it's it's the, the tragic fate that awaits us all. 
But yeah, uh, I'm tempted to give a useless and glib answer and say that we can identify science the same way that the Supreme Court identifies pornography. I know it when I see it. Hmm. I don't think it's quite that simple, but I do think that it is hard to come up with a rigid set of requirements or specifications or qualifications for what is or is not science. But I do think that it's wrong to say that there isn't a distinction between what is and isn't science and that we do kind of know it when we see it. Yeah, I mean, intelligent design is not science. Evolutionary theory is. Can I explain to you exactly why? Well, part of it has to do with motivations, right? We know where the motivation for the intelligent design movement comes from. Uh, it doesn't come from motivation to understand the world. It comes from a motivation uh, that's religious in nature. It comes from preconceived notions about how the world has to function and trying to get the world to fit those notions. That doesn't work. Uh, that's not a good way to go about doing science. And another part of the problem is that that worldview that comes with the intelligent design movement doesn't fit in to the rest of science in a, in a good way. Now that's not in and of itself a problem, but it poses problems that it then doesn't try to solve because it's not particularly interested in solving those problems because that's not the point. Um, so here's a really vague and incomplete and provisional way of distinguishing between science and not science. Science is a set of honest attempts to actually understand the world around us and that we are a part of. And it is a social activity conducted in a community that is engaged in the same enterprise. Hmm. We're getting toward the end of our time. There's a lot of sides to the story that you tell in this book, a lot of potential takeaways. For you as a writer and a physicist, what's the most important part of the story? What's it really about? That's a good question. I think it's a story. I'm going to steal from John Bell, who is probably a better writer than I'll ever be. John Bell talked about the great enterprise, understanding the world. I think that's, you know, what this story is about. It's about a set of attempts to understand the world amid adversity and controversy. I, I still think that's really important, you know, and sure, getting a good picture of the world that comes with quantum physics, you know, understanding what quantum physics is telling us about the world. It may not lead to any breakthrough technology or anything like that, but I think it would almost have to change the way that we look at ourselves because it would change the story that we tell about the world that we are a part of. So it's, it's really about the story of the world, the story that we are in, that we are, that, that our lives are pieces of. And, uh, and I think understanding that story is one of the, one of the fundamental human activities. Adam Becker, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. You can find Adam's book, What is Real, at your local library or anywhere books are sold. To learn more about Adam and follow along with his blog, go to freelanceastrophysicist.com. 
Catch the story behind the story the first Saturday of every month from 12 to 1 p.m. right here on KSQD 90.7 FM. To share your thoughts on this or other episodes, drop me a line at clara at ksqd.org. The story behind the story is produced for KSQD 90.7 FM by me, Clara Shirley Appel. Our sound engineer is Lenny Sammons. He also wrote our theme. This is Spooky Action at a Distance, my dear other. I'm a particle, though sometimes I'm a wave. All according to the way you choose to measure my behavior. But lately I've been asking about my velocity. What would my position be if you didn't give me one? Oh, but how would I know? Station you will rock in me.